So last week we learned that uh, as part of the new family of God in Jesus, we're called to wear new clothes. That uh, there's a whole new way of living that we're, that we're called to. And the truth of the matter is, you might have had this question as we're talking about it, well that seems great, but it's not always that easy, Adam. Uh, and that's a really important observation and absolutely true. Uh, and the fact of the matter is, new clothes can be hard to put on, right? So when Ada comes home from the hospital at some point this week, we pray, she's not going to know how to put her clothes on. She's going to need help in order to make that happen. And you say, well, she's an infant. And I say to you, I keep finding clothes in my life that I'm not sure how to put on. So when Jackson <clears throat> was in, got to high school and uh, he's in the band, the Freedom uh, Band, uh, their uniform is super complex, and as part of it, there's this crazy thing called an ascot. Ever heard of one of these things? Does anyone know how to put an ascot on? No. We watched all kinds of YouTube videos. <clears throat> we tried it. Uh, we're largely unsuccessful, and what did we have to do? We had to rely on the upperclassmen who had put on the ascot for a couple of years, and now Jack's a pro at it, and he can help people do the same way. And what I want to suggest to you is that these new clothes of the new family of God uh, are not just things that you say, okay, I'm going to go do that then. It actually is something that you've got to become part of a new culture that helps you embrace it so that you can live this new way. And so the question, well, then how do I do that? How do I wear these new clothes? How do I be a person of compassion and gentleness and, and humility and kindness how do I do these things, is not as simple as, we'll go home and try harder. That doesn't work. That's a recipe for disaster. Either um, a failure or massive amounts of pride because of self-transformation. None of those are honoring to God. Instead, what we suggested last week was, it's all about finding your true identity and so embracing it that it transforms you naturally. And you push back on that, uh, at least in your minds, I'm assuming, a little bit, and say, okay, but that's even more esoteric, Adam. That's even more abstract. How do we do this? And what I want to suggest to you is the Apostle Paul was assuming these questions too when he said it. And that's why he finished the past, this little section of Colossians the way he did. He gives us... Uh, a number of rhythms, I will call them, that he wants us to adopt both, both personally and corporately as church families so that we naturally live into this new identity which naturally leads to the transformation of our heart, the new clothes of the new family of God. Uh, a famous uh, business growth guy, I forget who it was, um, and I'm not always fond of using business growth as illustrations for church ministry, but alas, this one is good. Uh, he famously said that culture eats strategy for breakfast. Ever heard that before? That if you're trying to lead something in a particular way, what you really have to do is not come up with a convincing strategy, but you've got to build a culture that can allow an organization or people to move a certain way. And what I would suggest to you is Christianity is exactly the same. That what God's calling you to is a new culture, a new personal culture, a new corporate culture that allows transformation to happen. 
not you just applying a whole bunch of new religious stuff and crossing your fingers and hoping to get there. So Paul tells us how to create this culture at the end of this section in Colossians. So Colossians chapter 3, if you have a Bible with you, if not, the verses will be up on the screen. Just a couple of verses here, verse 15 through 17. This is what Paul writes. He says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. I would suggest to you that in this small group of verses, we've got six things, at least six things, that create really significant rhythms for us. Six things that we ought to be regularly incorporating in how we live and engage with this world that will allow us to embrace our God-given new identity, sons and daughters of God, part of this new family, that in uh, embracing that identity will lead to the transformation of our heart. First thing that Paul says is let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. What on earth is he talking about? Well, let's take it word by word. The peace, right? What is peace? And what does it mean? And I would suggest to you that there's pretty deep cultural realities at play in understanding what's happening here. So you have the Jewish background of peace. Paul is a Jewish man. He's a a Jewish uh, follower of Jesus. He believes that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. And when he uses a word like peace, he brings all of that understanding with him. Uh, And the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. Uh, And it doesn't just mean an absence of conflict. It means everything in its right place, right? just as God had designed it, everything functioning just as it should. Can you imagine living in a world where everything was just like it was supposed to be? When you hear the word peace, especially in Old Testament, but also in New Testament context, that's exactly what the author is trying to invoke in your senses. But it's not just the Hebrew idea of peace, I would suggest to you, it's also the Roman idea of peace. Now you remember when Paul is writing this and when the church really is established at Pentecost and launches out, the predominant empire of the day is based in Rome, right? And Rome has conquered much of the, of the world as at least as the people who were in it knew it. And there was a saying that the Roman Empire's emperors used called Pax Romana. Have you ever heard this before? Pax Romana. And that's just Latin for peace. Pax means peace, and Romana means of Rome. They were saying, we have brought to you lesser civilizations than us, the peace that only Rome can bring. Now there's a caveat to this, (laughs) that this peace comes through being conquered, right? So uh, say I'm uh, Palestine in that day, or Israel in that day, and Rome shows up with its legions of armies, and they basically say, we are here to bring you the peace of Rome. You have two choices. 
both of which are meant to end in the peace of Rome. One is fight <laughs> and probably get conquered, or the other is lay down your swords and let them conquer you. But what they're offering the Roman emperors of the day is that you will, by Roman rule, you will be ushered into such an age of prosperity because the Roman protection will keep wars and, and uprisings and things from happening in your region that often disturb you. They were announcing a peace unlike any other peace in the world, but it came through conquering. And so, you've got to understand that when the New Testament is written, it is written partially subversive to the Roman Empire, right? So things like Jesus is the Son of God, but uh, Caesar Augustus was also called the Son of God, right? Uh, Things like peace of Christ would have been the same as the peace of Caesar or the Pax Romana. Paul is presenting Jesus as a greater Caesar who brings a greater peace. But oh, by the way, he does it by conquering. Does this make sense? And in essence, you have two choices, right? You either lay down your swords and embrace the peace that is to come, or you fight and resist it. That when Paul says this, the peace of Christ, that's exactly what he's talking about. Those two concepts kind of smashed together. That Jesus has won the great victory over sin and death. And because of that, has ushered in a peace unlike any other time ever before in the world. Unless you're Jewish, you would say, a peace like God originally intended at the beginning of creation that frees you from the things that keep you from living the full life that you long for. You see this? The peace of Christ. And then he says, but let the peace of Christ rule. Interesting word, right? The, the word rule is the Greek word brabuo. Uh, and it actually was a word used of like athletic contests or uh, the Greek games, like the pre modern Olympics. And the word brabuo was actually used of like an umpire or the person who decided who won. Does that make sense? So if you like baseball like me, you know that some of the most frustrating people in the world are umpires, right? Because uh, now in baseball, if you watch it on TV, they have this little box that is uh, right over home plate and it tells you what a strike is mathematically perfect and accurate. But there's a dude standing behind there, uh, and he decides. He gets to pick what is really a ball or a strike. And depending upon who's back there that particular day, the strike zone can be smaller, it can be bigger, it can be all over the place, and batters and pitchers get angry all of the time. But in essence, if you're a batter or you're a pitcher, you're at the mercy of the umpire to call balls and strikes. You see this? This is how this, is how this word works. In essence, what Paul is calling them to, a central rhythm of embracing our identity, is to say, okay, I'm going to allow Jesus as my conquering king, believing that the full life of peace only comes from his rule, I'm going to let him be the arbiter of the paths and decisions of my life. Does this make sense? I'm going to allow Him and His kingdom to inform me 
how I ought to live, how I ought to respond. And then, oh, by the way, we are going to allow this peace of Christ, this Pax Christos, to be the arbiter between any disputes that we might have. Does this make sense? And so that's why, that's why Paul says in here, so you're called to one body. The only way that's possible is if the peace of Christ rules. Right? If the peace of Adam rules, it's not going to be one body. It's going to be those for Adam and those against Adam. Does this make sense? But it's not just interpersonal relationships or disputes. You've got to remember that inside of all of us is an ongoing dispute. Right? We talk about this spiritually. That we all have what the Bible calls flesh that is rebelling against the rule of Christ, believing that true peace doesn't come from Christ. It comes from our own rule. And then if we're believers in Jesus, we have the Spirit of God in us constantly declaring the truth of the peace of Christ. And they're constantly at war in us. And we, in essence, have a decision to make. Who do we let win in the disputes that go on internally? And Paul says, if you want to fully embrace your identity, if you want to be people who put on the new clothes of the new family of God, then you've got to allow the peace of Christ to be the arbiter of the battles that go on internally and externally in your life. Does that make sense? In other words, as new creation people or as a new creation person, how am I called to respond to this new circumstance? How ought I decide this decision that's in front of me? Rather than, what would I prefer to do? Or what would I like to do? Or, if you're anything like me, what would be easiest? Right? In all of those cases, I'm the arbiter. You see that? I'm the umpire. Not the umpire. I'm the umpire. I'm the referee. But Paul says a simple rhythm of embracing identity that leads to transformation is allowing Jesus to be the arbiter, the umpire in all the moves and decisions of life. Second thing he says, tiny little phrase right after that, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts in Christ Jesus. He says, and be thankful. Did you hear that? And be thankful. The second rhythm that we have to adopt with regularity in our lives, both personally and corporately, if we're going to embrace our new identity for true heart transformation, is we have to adopt the rhythm of gratitude. Uh, A year and a half ago, we went through the book of Numbers. Do you remember that long and arduous journey? Uh, About a long and arduous journey. Do you remember that? And central to the book of Numbers, of course, is the massive rejection of the people of God of his land. God rescues Israel from uh, Egypt miraculously. He brings them out. And he brings them to the edge of this land of promise, this place of true shalom, of peace, where God is going to rule and bring and provide for them everything they need without any objection or chains, fully free to live as God wants them to. And the people radically decide thanks but no thanks. Right? You remember? Two say yes. Ten say no. It's too hard. It's too challenging. It's not worth it. 
Here's what I want to suggest to you, as we did then, as we often do. That narrative is not just meant to be a historical truth of something that happened. That it is. But it also is meant to be the everyday narrative of our lives as followers of Jesus. That God is constantly directing us to this place of peace and prosperity. But there appear to be giants in the way. And we are constantly making the decision, do I trust Him or do I not? Is it worth it or is it not? What would be easier? How do I proceed? And without, without question or, or even without equivocation, the difference between the two who followed God and the ten who didn't, the difference between the small remnant of Israel who trusted God and the large remnant of Israel who died in the wilderness was the issue of gratitude. So let's not think it's some small issue of manners or moralism. Because if you are grateful, then you have recognized God's acts of grace. You see this? The Greek word for grace is charis. The Greek word for gratitude is eucharisteo. They are deeply related concepts. That is, people who are thankful are people who are recipients of grace. Do you see it? People who ever who grumble are people who are defined by what I'll call entitlement, what I think I deserve, or what I think I've earned. What's actually happening in grumbling is the failure to see the grace of God or to trust that God is gracious, and instead, as your own arbiter, make a ruling on your current circumstances of life and turn back. Listen to this. Gratitude embraces God's land of blessing. Grumbling rejects it. Gratitude leads to the full life of God. Grumbling leads to death in the wilderness. Who enters the land? Sons and daughters of God. Who does not? People embracing their own identity. See this? If we're going to be people who are practically intentional about trying to grip our true identity so that it is transformational, one of the key rhythms that we must embrace individually and corporately is regular rhythms of gratitude. It can look like a million different things. One of the things that my wife has done for a long time, uh, I think inspired by Ann Voskamp and her really significant book about gratitude, is keeping a gratitude journal. How simple. Regularly recording things you're grateful for. Regularly recording the graces of God that you've experienced. And sometimes you might not have a particular thing to write in that moment, either because your view is skewed or you're in a holding pattern. But the journal then becomes an anchor for you because you have all the previously recorded things that you can look back on and push you forward. A simple rhythm of gratitude is when you stop to pray, you begin your, moment, your times of prayer with basic aspects of gratitude spoken. God, thank you for. God, thank you for. You're not doing that necessarily to 
try to twist God's arm, right? God, thank you for all these things. Thank you for all these things now. Because I've been so grateful, will you do this thing for me? That's not, that's not how we do it. You speak gratitude to reinforce inside of you who, who you are, who your right father is, who your true identity is. If we're not people who are characterized by gratitude, we are going to struggle to embrace our true identity as sons and daughters of God because we are going to struggle to trust Him. And because we struggle to trust Him, we're going to choose the wilderness over the land of blessing. See this? Second thing, be grateful, be thankful. The third thing that Paul says is, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Right? What is the Word of Christ? Logos of Christos. The Logos is the message of Jesus, or as we talk about it all the time here at Hope, it's the Gospel, right? This is what Paul is talking about here. If you want to embrace your identity and therefore live a transformed life, then the Gospel's got to go deep in you. You've got you've to let it dwell in you richly. It can't just be, as we learn from uh, the letter of James, it can't be just something you hear, right? It can't just be something that you intellectually agree with but has no bearing on your life. It can't just be a Christian creed that you say, yeah, that's true, and then you live a different way. Those, that, 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 doesn't, that doesn't work. That's not how this thing works. Paul says here the same thing James said in, in James, that it's not just hearing the gospel, it's welcoming it in, right? Uh, the word dwell here in the original language means to take up one's primary residence, right? So the gospel is moving in hook, line, and sinker, right? And then it says, and it's going to move in richly, dwell richly. This word richly, we get our English prefix poly from it, right? Poly, that means many, right? And so the idea here is not uh, that, that the gospel is moving into a small section of your life. It's that it's moving into your whole life. Right? So, you ever had a situation, maybe you got married and you started living with another person, maybe uh, roommates, whatever it is, and, you know, each of you bring your stuff, right? And when you start living with another person, each of you has stuff that the other person perhaps tolerates or perhaps outright objects to, right? Uh, and so they find their place. And, and, like, so I have some stuff, right? And Rach doesn't necessarily outwardly object to it. It just doesn't fit with the beautiful things that Rach has, you know, that she does because... I'm utilitarian, I'm not for looks, and you're like, oh, that makes so much sense, Adam, thank you, you've solved the puzzle of, <laughs> of who you are, right? So one of my great possessions is this folding flyers chair that I have, right? I love the Philadelphia Flyers, sorry for anyone who doesn't, uh, and it's this, this chair that folds out, it's super comfortable, it doesn't match any furniture sets, it doesn't look particularly good in a living room. But when I got my first house, it was the only piece of furniture I owned, right? Oh, it's not true. I had a mattress. I didn't have any frames for the bed. It just laid on the floor, and I had the flyer's chair. And I was good. I was perfect. And you know that flyer's chair has come with me every single place I've lived since then. But if you came to our house now, you'd say, where's the flyer's chair? And I'd have to take you into the recesses of the basement to show you where, where it is on display now, right? 
But here's the idea of the gospel. That the gospel is bringing its flyer's chair and it's decorating the whole house with it. Do you see this? That Paul says here, the gospel is not just something you believe and it's good for Sunday morning when you go to church. Mm-mm. It's coming to work with you. It's in all your relationships. It's in all your decisions. It informs everything that you are. It's decorating every part of your house. This is what it means to let the gospel dwell richly. The idea being, if you're going to embrace your true identity as sons and daughters of God, then you have the obligation to bring the gospel to bear on every single circumstance and reality of life. The gospel has something to say about how you handle money. We've talked about these things. It has something to say about how you deal with conflict, how you deal with emotions. It has something to say about your sexuality and your work habits. It has something to say uh, about all and every single part of life. But for many of us, especially many people who just kind of go through religious habits, the gospel is contained to the basement, right? It's down there with Adam's flyers chair. You can bring it out. You know where it is. It's good for those special occasions or when you really need to relax or find some comfort. But you're not going to embrace your identity living like that. The gospel has to be in everything that you do. You say, but how do I do that? And Paul says, ah, here's how. Teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs in everything you do. That somehow, part of this rhythm of letting the gospel go deep in you and every part of you is the balance of teaching and admonishing. Right? Teaching and and admonishing. Teaching is simply the idea of instruction, the idea of instructing and illuminating the way of Jesus, the, the, how to live, what, what difference the gospel makes. Admonishing is a little bit different, right? It has the idea of warning. <laughs> the idea is, uh-oh. <laughs> Teaching is, hey, here's what you can be. Admonishing is, mm, you might be a little off here, and I'm call- we're calling you back, right? Uh, teaching is... Um, Instructing towards, calling towards, admonishing is calling from. Does that make sense? Calling people away from something. So how do you embrace rhythms of teaching and admonishing so that the gospel can dwell richly in you? There's a couple things that are pretty clear and pretty basic. The first is, you ought to be reading the scriptures with regularity. Because one of the things that Paul tells us about the Bible, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 is that it does two things. He actually says four things, but it, two of them are, surprise, surprise, it teaches and it admonishes us, right? That when you read Scripture honestly, it regularly is showing you a different way, and if you read it with an open heart, it periodically, or if you're like me, often says, mm, you might be a little off here, let's come on back, right? Let's come on back to the way of Jesus. And it's, it's God's grace, in the scripture that allows that to happen. Paul says to the Romans, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's not God's anger casting down bolts of lightning at us for our misstep. But it's not just Bible reading, it's participation in a church community, right? One of the reasons that we gather together every Sunday morning is to teach and admonish one another. 
And I need to tell you something. That's not just my job. That's our job. So the teaching and admonishing is not limited to the sermon time. It happens when we engage with each other. It happens simply by conducting ourselves appropriately one to another. It happens when we sing. How on earth could you admonish and teach someone with songs, hymns, and spiritual songs? Those do not seem like the appropriate tools for teaching and admonishing. Yet Paul says, "Mm, they're pretty significant. Do you know that? When you're singing earlier this morning, you were teaching and admonishing. It's pretty cool. How? Because you're recentering your heart. And because we sing as a community, we're proclaiming that truth to each other. It's really significant. See, most people think when you come to a church gathering, you're coming to get something. Paul doesn't see church like that. Paul says the church community comes to to mutually give one to another. So you're not just coming because, oh, I hope the sermon's good and it helps me today, and I hope that it does. But you're coming because you said, I'm part of this community, and when we gather together, we teach and admonish one another, even without words most of the time, to be all that God is calling us to be. It's significant. No one's keeping attendance here. No one's grading you on your attendance. But i got to tell you, as your pastor, I'm desperate for you to be here every single week because I need you here. Not so you can listen to my sermons, but my heart needs to be taught and admonished by you. By the smile that you come in with, even in the midst of your difficult circumstances. It lets me know that you've allowed the peace of Christ to rule in your heart. By the way you sing with fervor, it lets me see a heart given to God. By the time when you speak into my life and say, hey, this is what I saw, this is what I heard, maybe there's a better way. Significant, important. That's our job as a church. That's not a pastor's job. That's a church's job. And so when you selectively disassociate yourself from the regular gathering of the church, you're choosing out of a central call of God on your life to be this for each other. It's truly significant and important. Part of creating this rhythm is embracing these regular things. Being present at community group. Being present at the equipping gatherings in community group. Being present uh, at Sunday morning worship gatherings. Being present in, in other places. Being present in the scriptures to read and redirect. All of it is allowing the word of Christ to dwell in you richly. Third thing. The fourth thing is Paul calls us to sing. He says, sing with gratitude in your hearts. What a strange command, right? I oftentimes wonder if people who are are not really part of a church or haven't ever been to one, if when they happen to show up at one, they think to themselves, what on earth are all of these people singing about? It's kind of weird as an outsider, right? You think, oh, part of this is group singing? That's a little bit bizarre, isn't it? Especially in our world where we just like, don't make things feel awkward for me, right? But singing is so central to the life of a Christian that it would be erroneous for us to remove it from our regular gatherings. Paul says, in fact, it's one of the, sing- one of the singular rhythms that you need to adopt as a Christian if you're going to truly embrace 
your identity in Christ. Now, thank goodness he didn't say you have to do it well, right? He just says you have to do it. And, and there's a couple of statements or a couple, couple of uh, things that are implied in this. Right? Sing with thankfulness to God. Uh, the translation with thankfulness, it, it could be translated that, but <clears throat> there's really not a preposition <clears throat> in the original language. It actually says, like, sing the grace to God. Sing the grace to God. Or sing grace to God. Now, because the word for grace and the word for thankfulness are so interwoven, this is a fair translation. Sing with thankfulness. But I wonder, and I don't have proof of this, if what Paul's actually talking about is when you sing, you're declaring gospel truth. That when you sing, you're declaring the truth of the grace of God. That it is a declaration to the world. That's why we sing out loud. But even more significantly, it's a declaration to our hearts. That singing becomes such a significant reality because it is a moment of realignment and reminding ourselves who we are. But Paul is right to say that when we sing, we sing in our hearts, right? Now, you know, and I know, we sing with our mouths. We don't sing with our hearts. And yet we use the phrase singing with our hearts because one of the important things that singing does is that it connects the heart and the mind through the use of the mouth. We've talked about this when we actually did a sermon a while back titled, Why Do We Sing When We Gather Together? Uh, And the reality is perhaps nothing more than the act of singing kind of involves our emotions and our spirit with our mind in declaring, uh, in declaring the truth of God. That we're actually taking truth that we agree with in our mind and forcing it down into our hearts into a deeper belief. Singing does that. That's, that's, oh, by the way, oftentimes like when you sing things, you remember them better than when you just say them or hear them or agree with them. But singing is an important rhythm that you ought to be making room for, even if it's just Sunday mornings when we gather. Because it reminds you of who God is and what He's done. And it moves that truth into your hearts. But there's a a third part to this that we need to pause on. And it's a little soapbox for me, and you've heard me talk about it before, I imagine. But it's truly significant. Paul says that we're singing to God. Right? This is important. Because there is an ever-growing culture within the church, I'm not talking about this one, though I imagine it exists here too, that subtly believes that worship is for us. Now, no one would ever say that out loud like that. But their actions and their beliefs demand that that's actually true. And so oftentimes it comes out like this. I really like the worship at this church. (laughs) I love the worship over here. Well, I'm glad that you love it, but it wasn't for you. It was never for you. It's always for God. As Christians, we ought to be able, I get that this is hard. I'm not telling you I've arrived. We ought to be able to walk into any kind of worship environment and fully engage our heart because God's worth it. You see this? Now listen, I love good music just as much as the next person. That's why I love the 80s and the 90s, right? And I think it's important that we're led by capable and quality musicians, not just kind of throwing stuff together and hoping it works. No one's suggesting that things shouldn't be done well. 
But as we're doing things well, if we're not continuing to remind people that worship is to God, it's not for our consumption. Worship is going to become, uh, at worst, idolatrous. Or at best, experiential. And none of it, in that case, is actually formative as a rhythm for you. It's just something you consume and like. But if worship is a regular act of you giving yourself to God, and when you sing, you're declaring truth from the depth of who you are, then it actually is deeply formative. We sing not for us. We sing for God because it forms us. The fourth thing we sing. The fifth thing is how Paul ends this this uh, little section of Scripture. 